Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Well, howdy, Faith Church. Great to see you this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Romans. It's likely the most difficult book in the Bible to work through, so thanks for leaning in with me. Kind of want to share a little bit of maybe why I picked this book by telling you a story. You all know I'm a pastor. I know that's a joke, right? Like, you're like, you? I'm like, yep, yep, I'm a pastor. And I hate when people in the community ask me what I do, right? Because there's almost always a negative response. When I say what I do, people act interestingly. So I'll explain it. So go to some social gathering, everybody's hanging out, everybody's having fun, and someone's laughing, everybody's enjoying themselves. Hey, Joe, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor, and everything changes, right? It like immediately goes into confession, I'm sorry for the F-bombs, right? Like, I'm sorry I'm acting this way. People start to get awkward around me, they think I can see everything, I can't see anything. It's just awkward and hard, and people change, and slowly they just start to move away away from me like I have a disease or something. It's like, I don't like being asked what I do at all. It's just not one of those things I want to talk about. And so it shows me something that's on display in the book of Romans that each and every one of us, every person knows right and wrong. There's something inside every single human being, and Romans touches on this, that that we know there's right and there's wrong. The reason that we act the way we do around teachers and police officers and our doctor and our mentor and those we respect, our pastor, our priest, is because we know how we're behaving is right or wrong. And we think that we have to change how we act around people. We know we're accountable in some form or fashion. So we think these people we might see as respectful in the community, we have to display a certain affect, a certain way of behaving because we know right and wrong and we know we're accountable. It's universal, it comes with the package. Every single person knows right and wrong, but they're not accountable to me. They are accountable to God. And there's this natural human sense that we are accountable. It's why we do that. It's why we change. And we only put on display what we want our parents to know, what the people in our community we want. We, we think we can hide our true selves. And the reality is we can hide from each other, but we can't hide from God. We are accountable. We're accountable to him. So I could care less how many F-bombs you drop. Like I could, I don't, what do you clean up your mouth around me for, right? It doesn't matter to me what you do, but it should matter to you what God thinks about your life and your decisions, right? And so the book of Romans kind of walks us through this starting in chapter one teaching us this, that it teaches the nature of every human, that all of us are messed up, that all of us do wrong, and it teaches us the character of God in response to who we are as sinful, broken people. And so if you jump into Romans chapter 3 with me, open your Bibles, turn them on. Romans chapter 3, we'll kind of work our way through this where we're going to see again our accountability isn't on one level to humans, but it is to God. And when we hear that we're accountable to God, some of us might get nervous about that because we go, oh my goodness, what does that mean? 
But what Romans has taught us up till now is yes, we're all messed up. Yes, we're all broken. Yes, we all fall, fall short. We're far worse than we think in many ways, but God is so much more gracious than we can imagine. And so when we take our time working through Romans and seeing how flawed and messed up we are, but we also see how great and loving and just and kind God is, it helps us and it shouldn't cause us to be intimidated or bothered. The truth always sets us free. Sidestepping the truth, confusing the truth, ignoring the truth is actually a form of prison. The truth sets us free. And so looking at our true selves and our character and who we are before God and looking at the goodness and the glory of God, that's a way towards health and healing and freedom. And so Romans is working us through this. Thanks for following along. Let's pray. God, I ask today that you would use your word to help us, to grow us, to convict us, to show us who we are, and to reveal more of who you are. In light of who we are, we desperately need you. We don't want to sidestep the truth of our sinfulness, but so we're so grateful today that you're kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So, so help us look at your word today and see ourselves and see your character. I ask through Christ our Lord, amen. So to get to Romans chapter three, we go through Romans one and two, just as a review, these are sermons we've already done together, but Romans chapter one really zooms in on Gentiles, and Gentiles is just the Bible word for not Jewish, right? So not Jewish, all the not Jewish people in the world are guilty of sin, and we kind of slowed down through verses 18 to 32 to look at how all of us suppress the truth that God exists. All of us exchange God for cheap substitutes. All of us do this. All of us non-Jewish people, Gentiles, do this. And the Bible says God's wrath is being revealed against that. Like God hates that we do this, but he's like, if you don't want to choose me, if you want to suppress the truth, go ahead. That's what you want to do, but it makes us guilty of sin. And when our sin, it, our sin has a cost. And we talked about this extensively in chapter one, that the sin costs me individually and it costs us society. It's not just my sin. My sin interacts with everyone else. When I make mistakes, it affects you. And when you make mistakes and sin before God, it affects me. And so that's what we work our way through Romans chapter one. And it gets to Romans chapter two and he, he kind of moves the focus to Jewish people. And the Jewish people, Claudio taught this sermon where Jewish people wind up because they have the law, God's law and the prophets, they think they're superior. The Jews that Paul's addressing think they're superior to others and they're self-critical or the judgmental spirit against everyone else. And Claudio was reminding us that it's so easy when we know something to think we're better than other people. And then Sam last week reminded us that all these things that the Jewish people followed, none of the circumstances and situations and laws, the religion that people follow, none of that saves you, but it's the law of God that shows you how sinful you are and how much you need Jesus. So we work through the fact that Jews are guilty of sin too, so that by the time you get to Romans chapter three, he's really getting to like, okay, Gentiles, non-Jewish people are sinful. They fall short of God's glory. Jewish people are sinful. Now we're all sinful. And it's like this universality of our sin and our brokenness before God. And that that sin has a cost. You see, God's not this enabling grandfather figure that thinks your sin and my sin is cute. He knows it's gonna destroy us. It knows that it comes at a cost and there's gotta be a payment for that. And so at the end of Romans chapter three, he's gonna talk about the payments 
and the plan, but it's having an honest view of the fact that we as humans are guilty of sin, every single one of us, without exception, and the remedy comes through Christ. Before he, in the end of Romans chapter three, that he gets to that, we're gonna look at Romans chapter three, verse one, and he spends a few more minutes talking specifically about Jewish people, but I think it's actually applicable to all of us, so let's dive in together. Romans chapter three, verse one. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Would their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. This is God's word and this is confusing. Can I get an amen? So we're gonna do some work together. Let's work through this step by step, see what Paul has to say. He starts out, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? Of what value is there to circumcision? Much in any way, every way. So in Romans chapter two, Paul's like, all this religious tradition that you guys do, including circumcision, it's all meaningless. Now imagine if you got circumcised because God was like, you gotta get circumcised, and then you're like, it's all meaningless. People will go, wait, what? I'm angry right now, right? Why am I doing meaningless things? And they would be angry. The Jewish people are reading Romans 2 and hearing it. They'd be frustrated. They'd be like, why is the things that we do, the traditions of our law, meaningless? So Paul picks up that argument and goes, no, no, just in case you think all of that's meaningless, let me tell you. The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. He's like, just in case you think it doesn't matter, let me, let me remind you, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. This is actually very relevant today Um, You may know there's tension in the Middle East. This actually helps us to understand what's happening in the Middle East today. I'll explain. God has chosen the Jewish people to start a covenant with. God, back in history, said, I'm going to make, I'm going to choose among all people a group of people that I'm going to make a covenant with. I'm going to make a contract with them. I'm going to be the Jewish people's gods, and they're going to be my my people. I'm going to make laws. I have certain ways that I'm going to behave towards them, and I'm asking them to behave in a certain way towards me, right? And God says, now here are all your laws. And he gives the Jewish law to them to to guide their behavior. You're my special people. Here's how I want you to live. And what's incredible about God is he says right out of the gate, hey, even if you're unfaithful to my law and my expectations, even if you don't live the way I want you to live, I will be faithful to you. Even if you break the contract, I'm going to be loving and kind to you. You are my chosen people, and I'm gonna put on display my faithfulness. I'm gonna ask you to live in a certain way. Regardless of how you live, I will love you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. This makes the Jewish people different, but not better. Different, not better. I'll explain it this way. If you're the coach of a team, you pick a player or two to be the captain of the team. When you're picked to be the captain, that doesn't make you better. 
It does make you distinct and different. It changes your role and responsibility, not your value, right? And so when a good coach chooses a captain, they choose the captain based on their abilities, their abilities to act in a certain way and represent the coach. There are times the captain has to speak on behalf of the coach, but certainly it's expected that the captain uphold the standards of the coach and put it on display for everyone to see. The coach has the prerogative to pick whatever captain they choose. In many ways, God has chosen the Jewish people to be the captain of the human race. You could disagree with it. You can like the, what the coach has chosen or done. You can agree or disagree, but he in his providence has chosen them to be the captain of the team. And he expects of them that they would behave in a certain way. And regardless of how they behave, he will remain faithful. When you look at world history, what you find is the Jewish race has continually been persecuted even up till today. Sometimes that persecution is because of how they behaved. More often than not, it's because they were chosen as the captain. And people want to be the captain and they want to get to the coach. And so evil in our world has attacked the captain to hurt the captain and to get to the coach. Now look at what happens next. What if some were unfaithful? He's speaking about Jewish people. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being be a liar. Okay, so what happens if the captain doesn't behave in a way that represents the coach? What does any good coach do? Disciplines the captain. And so when you look at the Jewish race in ways they haven't behaved the way God intended them to behave, you look at the whole Old Testament and you see that the captain, God, has disciplined continually his chosen people because of their behavior. But none of that changes God's faithfulness. None of that changes who God is. That even if any player, any person, Jew or Gentile, like regardless of how we behave, God is never a liar. He is always faithful and always true regardless of the behavior of people, players, or the captain. He is faithful. And the skeptic asks another question, verse seven. Well, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderous claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. It's almost like he's going, well, if God is gonna be faithful, no matter how people behave, if God's gonna be kind and trustworthy, if he's gonna do good and bring good out of even messy situations, then why does it even matter how I act? What does it even matter and so you look at the current situation that's going on in the Middle East as an example. What took place in early August was evil and wrong towards the Jewish people, evil and wrong. And it is right for them and for anyone to defend themselves. But that never gives anyone a right to be evil, right? We, we have the rights to defend, but we don't cross the line saying the ends justifies the means. We never return evil for evil. That's never okay. So presuming good will come from my evil choices dishonors God always. 
to make a deliberate decision to do something that's wrong and say, well, God's faithful. God's good. He's going to do good things despite my lack of faith or despite my behavior. That never honors God and that is never his path. God takes all of us as sons and daughters, certainly the Jewish people and you and I, and says, no matter how someone treats you, no matter how evil, it doesn't give you the right to be evil. Evil is never one with more evil. Again, that doesn't mean that people don't have a right to defend themselves, but it doesn't fix the problem when I become evil in the face of evil. And I am never justified. The ends don't justify the means in God's economy. Never. How I treat people and what I do and how I do it matters to God. Either honors him or dishonors him. So go back to Romans chapter 3 verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And this section of scripture, I want you to imagine in your mind like a courtroom scene. Romans chapter three, verse nine through 20 is like a courtroom scene where the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, who is just and right in all his ways, the perfect judge, 100% right all the time, forever. And all of humanity is standing before the perfect judge. And he brings the accusation to the entire human race, Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew alike are under the power of sin. This is across the board to everyone, everyone that was ever conceived, born from the beginning of time to the end of time. All of us are under the power of sin. It's carte blanche. It's every single one of us have suppressed the truth of God. Every single one of us change, exchange God for cheap substitutes. Every single one of us fail to align our hearts to God. This is an incredible accusation that's being made in the court. If you were there and the court judge was just like, everybody in here is guilty. That's an incredible statement. And you'd stand up and go, well, what's the evidence? And so verse 10 through 18 is the evidence and he, he gives this point after point after point after point, this like long list. And I'll just highlight a couple. He says, no one is righteous. And remember what the Bible word of righteous is, 100% right 100% of the time. Is that true for you? You've lived 100% right 100% of the time from the time you entered the world to the time you exited? 
It's like nobody can do that. Who can do that? But that's God's perfect standard. So he says, across the human race, no one has done that. He goes, tongues that practice deceit, right? Did anybody teach you to lie or did you figure it out yourself? I mean, I can just tell you, I figured it out all by myself. I could spin some real good lies as the littlest person ever, right? As soon as your word's coming out of your mouth, you have the ability to lie. How does that happen? It's wired into our human race that we're sinful. By nature, it's how we're entering this world, how we're conceived. It comes with, and so we, we're constantly deceiving, bending the truth, exaggerating, adding inflection, right? Deceit is normal for the human race. How about feet that shed blood? You go, well, I've never shed any blood. I've never killed anybody. I've never hurt anybody. But by Jesus' standard, Jesus says, if you think hateful thoughts in your head and you speak hateful things against another person, so remember all the times you threw your boss under the bus? You shed innocent blood by God's standards. Every time you cursed out them or those type or that kind of person, every time you said slanderous gossip against someone, you've shed innocent blood by God's standard, right? No fear of God. This isn't like I'm cowering, afraid of God, but there's this respect for God, no awe of God, no reverence from God. There's no sense among us that we're afraid or live under this authority or under his respect. We, we don't live that way. And so, so Paul's like, none of us Here's the evidence. Look across your entire life and look across the lives of everybody around. Everyone. And you look at this statement by theologian J.I. Packer. He says, no one is as bad as he or she might be. No action of ours is as good as it should be. And you hear people say this, like, I'm not so bad. Right, like, you're honestly not so bad. But you're not good either. Like, we don't think about it that way. It's like, well, I'm not so bad doesn't mean that I'm good. And in God's standards, it's love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It isn't about not being bad. What about the not good part, right? And so this is the standard that he looks across all of humanity, everyone ever conceived or born in every different generation and every ethnicity. He says, this is the evidence against you. No one is as bad as he or she thinks, but nobody's good either. And then he brings down the verdict. The verdict is we're all accountable. We don't get out of it. We don't go, I get a pass. No, we're all accountable to God. And there's a cost to this. He's not this enabling grandfather that looks away and goes, your sin is cute. No, you're guilty of sin and there's a cost and this has to be paid for. And what's beautiful about Romans chapter 3, 21 and following is he's gonna talk about how it was paid for and what we do under this extremely heavy verdict. We'll get to that next week. But here today, what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that we know that we're wrong and we know that we're accountable? What do we do with that? So a couple practical things that may be helpful. First, we take our sins seriously. Because this isn't a game. This isn't like, boy, isn't my slander or my deceit or my racism or my sexism, isn't it cute? No, it's not cute. And what I find about myself, you might not know, uh, you might not think this, I find myself as I'm really hard on you, but I'm not really hard on me. 
I'll be hard about you and ways you fall short and the ways you screw up and the ways I'll hold you to the highest standard and I'll choke you out for not getting it right, but I'm so gentle with me. I'm so patient with me. Oh, that's just a little, that's just a slip up. That's just a mistake. That's just a, like, really? What about me? Right, so we start with me when we look at this verdict from God. We start looking closely at ourselves. We start looking at ourselves and going, how have I rejected God? How have I suppressed the truth of God? How have I exchanged God for cheap substitutes? I'm not looking at you. I don't have time. I got a full-time job looking at me. What about me? Do I intensely hate my sin? Do I intensely hate my sin? Do I see it as cute or not a big deal? I intensely hate your sin and I want you held accountable. But me? No, be gentle and kind and patient with me. No, it starts with be hard on me, God. Start here, God. Work here. And we find ourselves exchanging God for cheap substitutes. Some of the ways we do that is we think religion is gonna save us. We exchange looking closely at ourselves with cheap substitute. Well, I go to church. Joe, I go to church every week. That does nothing for you. I am baptized. I'm catechized. I'm fill in the blank. Like I do all these religious things. Those things will not save us. They're just another exchange for a cheap substitute. Those are the outward expression of an inward reality, but they don't change the inside of who I am. We also have come in America today to make excuses a religion. Have you fallen into the trap of making excuses your religion? Where you make excuses for your shortcomings. Where you make excuses for your behavior. You make excuses for your actions. And I'll say this gently, but straight. Do you know every single one of us have been mistreated to some degree or another? Every single one of us have been harmed by our parents to one degree or another. Every single one of us have been let down by our education system to one degree or another. Every single one of us have been disappointed by our government to one degree or another. Every single one of us have been hurt or harmed in one degree or another. And all of those things explain why we behave the way we do. And there's a place to explain it, but there's not a place to excuse it. We're still individually responsible for our behaviors and our actions before God. And that doesn't mean I compare myself to you and you don't compare yourself to me. And I don't compare myself to your economics or your education or your class or your race. That's not it. I go to the word of God, to God's word, and I look at the word of God and what does the word of God say about me? And I align myself with the word of God because God's standard is perfect. And so I look at the mirror of God's word and say, God, show me who I am. Show me what I look like. I can explain why I act the way I do, but I can't excuse it. So with your Holy Spirit, would you help me to be the man, the woman you want me to be? I'll align my lifestyle with yours because your standard is perfect and your spirit will help me. I'm not looking around at anywhere else and I'm not making excuses anymore. I will own me and with your power, I will change me one day at a time. And he says, I'll help you. Because it's hard verdict that we're all sinful. And what do we do? We trade, we trade our sinful lifestyle for the perfection of Jesus. 
I mean, this word is really important. We trade. See, it's not going to be by good works. It's not by behavior modification. It's none of that. It's a trade. And we make faith so complicated. But honestly, like little children, if you're in a schoolyard and someone's like, I'll trade you. Jesus wants to trade you. He, he lived this perfect life and he died the death that we deserve. And he's like, I'll trade you. Do you want my perfect life? You can have it. It's all yours. Take it. It, it requires you recognizing that you're a sinner. Recognizing that nothing you can do can make yourself better. It requires you asking for help. He's like, I'll trade you. And when you trade your sin, you get his perfection. You get his status as the son of God with an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. It's an incredible trade, but you have to decide. You'll see yourself accurately and go, I'll trade. You want to trade Jesus? I'll trade. You can have this. You're going to take the shame of all the things I've done wrong in my past and all the things I'll do wrong in the future. You're going to take that shame away from me and you're going to give me your perfection? I'll take it. If you made the trade, it changes this. It changes your lifestyle. The old is gone, the new is come, and it makes you full of joy and gratitude. Why are Christians so stinking cranky? Why do Christians rant? Why do Christians always avoid those people? We of all people should be marked by joy and gratitude because we know just how bad I am and how bad you are. And we know the greatness of the trade in Christ. We should be the most joyful, the most most grateful, not in November, every day. When we sing the praises of God, it's because you took this shame and you made me new. and You gave me new life. And now I look at life with joy and gratitude for the one who paid my debt that I could live forever. I want you to look at Romans 3.11 one more time. Paul says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Based on Paul's statement here, is there any wiggle room for you to think you're okay? Like, is is there any wiggle room in this to go, well, not me. No, I'm pretty good. Is there any wiggle room there? It's like, no. He's like, no. He's looking across all of humanity. No one righteous. I'll bring that into modern times. Let me say it this way. Russian or Ukrainian, there's no one good, not one. Islam or Jew, no one good, not one. Jewish, Israeli, Palestinian, no one good, not one. Democrat, Republican, no one good, not one. Black, white, no one good, not one. Your children, your aunts, your uncles, your coworkers, you, everyone, no one good, not one. There's no wiggle room in Paul's language. There's no one good, not one. And that is incredibly hard because doesn't Mother Teresa look great compared to Vladimir Putin? There's no one good, not one. And the only one who's good is Jesus. So what does this cause us to do, right? What does this mean? 
It means I first and foremost look at my own sin and then I humbly see the sin of everyone else and I lovingly point them to Jesus. I first start with me and I go show me my sin, my shortcomings. There's no one good, not even one. Starts with me. I lovingly see other people and I go, every person deserves love. Every person needs to hear the hope of Christ. Without the hope of Christ, the verdict is severe. It changes me and it allows me to see everyone else as lost and broken. First me and then everyone else. And I have a lot to do with looking at myself in the mirror. But as I look around my world and I look around my neighborhood and I look around my family, how are people gonna hear? So this is what Paul says in Romans 10. He, he makes this statement. How, how are these people who don't know Jesus, who are lost and no one righteous, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? This word preaching doesn't mean get preachy. Get ranty about how wrong and blasting people with how they're all going to hell, right? That's not what it means. It means proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it, because how will they know unless we tell them? Start with me first. And as I see myself and I call out to Christ, he begins to change me and give me the ability to humbly and lovingly see and serve other people. I'm gonna go back to the beginning. Um, I hate when people ask me what I do, right? So I've had to come up with another answer without lying. <laughs> so when someone says, what do you do? Now I say, I'm in sales, <laughs> right? Because 90% of the time, no one's gonna ask what you sell because then they think you're gonna try, right, to sell them. So it's like I say, well, well, they say, what do you do? I said, I'm in sales. And then nobody asks. But if they do ask, if they do ask, I say, I sell Jesus. Because if anybody could love and forgive this train wreck, if anybody could change me, if anyone could give me hope, if anyone could help me, they might be able to help you. Can I tell you about Jesus? He cares about people from every background and orientation and political affiliation, every race, every ethnicity. He loves and cares for and wants to come alongside you. There's no one greater, no one better, no one from beginning of time to end of time, no one better than this Jesus. Can I sell you Jesus? He sells himself. And oh, by the way, now from now on, when someone asks you what you do, you tell them, I'm a salesman for Jesus. Because God might have put you in a medical field. He might put you in landscaping. He might put you in education. He's given you grandkids and children and nieces and nephews. You're an athlete. Whatever you do, your number one identity is how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Your number one identity is a salesperson for the one who changes me from the inside out. Your number one job, wherever you find yourself, is not to be preachy or ranty, but to be humble and loving and invite people to know the one who changed your life now and forevermore. You're a salesman too. You're a saleswoman too. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God has put you in the lives of people to bring them good news, which first is recognizing the bad news in you, seeing yourself accurately based on what the Bible teaches, stopping the excuses, 
but with joy and gratitude, changing and becoming more like Christ with his help, that you lovingly see the people around you and tell them the good news that if God could love me and change me, he loves you and can change you too. How beautiful. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word that guides us, that convicts us, that comforts us, that leads us. God, if I said something I shouldn't have said, please strike it from the memory of everyone that heard I'm just a salesman. But you are the great shepherd and your sheep hear your voice. And so would you call people from this crowd, from online, from our community into a relationship with you? And would we use our lives to love and serve others with this good news? The bad news is we're all worse than we think. The good news is you're far greater and gentle and merciful than we can imagine. So may we bring ourselves to you and may we be, by, be marked by joy and gratitude, even as we sing this closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.